Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Now, keep that in mind. The Greeks want to see him. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, he's starting to declare here things that are happening now. That is, as he's speaking. First, it's time that he be glorified. Then he tells this, this little cryptic message, which is not very cryptic for us because we know the story, don't we? But for them, you put yourself in their shoes, and he says, a kernel of wheat has to fall into the ground and die. And it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Don't get caught up on the term hate. You have to understand the language that was used in a different culture. Merely a term of preference, not hate in the sense we understand hate in the 21st century. That is preferring the world to come, eternal life, to the life we have now. He furthermore says, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. They still don't have a clue what he's talking about. We fill in the blanks while we read it. They don't know what he's saying. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd was there, and they heard it and said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit and not mine. Well, for some of them, it didn't do them a whole lot of good because they didn't even understand this was the voice of God. Thunder and angels and everything else except the voice of God. Verse 31, very significant. Now is the time. He's telling us something critically important. Now something is going to happen. Not in a few days. Now. Now is the time for judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. This is a keystone passage in the whole redemption story. 
This chapter is absolutely brimming with information about the season that we casually call Easter, the Palm Sunday, the Passion Week, the Passover, the Resurrection Sunday. And this has so much information in there relating to that season. The first thing I want to share with you is the fact that Jesus says, now is the time that the world is going to be judged. Simply put, what it means is now is the time when the earth is judged, the world is judged, their erroneous philosophies are judged, that Jesus is going to be vindicated. Who he is and what he has done, what he claims and what he has taught is all going to be vindicated because this is the time. Whatever is going to happen will vindicate the life and the teachings of Jesus. Whatever was about to happen, would validate his entire ministry as being right and all his opponents as most assuredly being wrong. Now let's go to another passage of Scripture, and I'll spray it on the wall for you so you don't have to turn if you don't want to. In the 16th chapter of John, Jesus gives some last-minute instructions to his disciples. He warns them, first of all, you're going to suffer persecution. The reason you're going to be persecuted is because of how wrong the world is, how messed up the world is in their thinking, because Jesus said, they do not know me or the Father. That's the basis by which his followers would be persecuted. He then told them, I'm going to go away. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit as the advocate, and here are three things the Holy Spirit will do when he comes. And the passage of Scripture says this, when he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. In other words, the world doesn't get it right. If you don't understand God's perspective on this, the world gets it totally messed up. And he says the Holy Spirit will come. This is all connected with the things he said that are now going to happen about sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can no longer see me, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. He brings powerful clarity to this point about the world being judged and him being vindicated. First of all, the Holy Spirit will judge the world and vindicate Jesus concerning the issue of sin by proving the world wrong. Most of the world does not follow Jesus. The number of Christians in the world bumps up right around close to uh, 30% of the entire world population. But out of those, I have to imagine that if it's the same, the sampling is the same as, as what I experienced, people who call themselves Christians are not always so. Have you ever noticed that? They identify with the religion of Christianity, but they're not necessarily what I would term Christians. Nevertheless, the fact of the matter is the majority of the world 
is not, they are not followers of Christ. They did, and even in Jesus' day, most of the people then did not believe in him. Most of the people he uh, presented himself to did not choose to believe him or follow him. Just a minority. Even the majority of his own people, Jews, did not believe him. This is absolutely mind-boggling. As the Jews anticipate their Messiah, he comes and they miss him. They're blinded. They can't see him. So Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come and prove the world wrong in their understanding and prove Jesus right. He would come and prove to the world that they were on the wrong course if they continue on this trajectory. It means they were missing the bullseye, which is the literal meaning of the word sin. Missing the bullseye. And the Holy Spirit would convict the world, convince the world, prove the world that they were wrong. This world was on this course to miss God's target. And the Holy Spirit would come and do his job and bring conviction on people who were off course. Without the Holy Spirit, people will not know that they are lost in sin. They will not realize they are missing the mark. He zeroes them in on that. And by doing that, he would vindicate Jesus Christ. His followers would not be convicted. For having devoted their life to Christ. I'm not convicted. I am blessed because I follow him. It's the people who do not follow Jesus Christ who are convicted. They would not feel moral regret and contrition for carrying his name. I don't feel any guilt or remorse for following him. It would be those who were not following him who would feel the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and their errant ways. The second thing the Holy Spirit would do was it would, uh, Jesus would be vindicated by the Holy Spirit proving him to be right. The first point, the slight difference is, he would convince the world they're wrong. And the second one, of righteousness, to prove, to, to, Prove that Jesus Christ is right by comparison to proving that the world is wrong. So the word righteousness, convince the world of righteousness, implies something that you don't readily see there, but it implies justice. And some translations actually use that word. The Holy Spirit would prove the world wrong concerning the issues of righteousness or justice because Christ was going to the Father, but prove Jesus right concerning the issue of righteousness. Justice is the heart cry of every human being. We all want it here today. We're constantly looking for justice. It doesn't make any difference if it's something as simple as sitting down with a friend and sharing a donut. They want to make sure you both get the same amount because we are bent on justice in this world. We demand fairness. 
We want to believe we're being treated fairly. We don't like to see somebody who else who paid the same price get more than we got for what we paid. I like justice. I like justice to lean in my favor. You know, whenever you go up and buy a slice of pizza, and how, how many of you are just as keenly aware of it as I am that there's always one slice bigger than the rest of them? See, justice to, to me, don't give me the smaller piece. Give that to somebody who doesn't eat much. I want the big piece. I don't know if that's justice or not, but I'm always wanting to be treated fairly. I don't want the little one. I paid my money. If big ones are available, give me the biggest you got. That's justice. Well, we're already looking for balance in our life. But the Holy Spirit understands people's craving for justice in life. It's the heart cry of every human being. It, the world is so terribly out of balance. And people have absolutely abandoned their faith because they think they see lack of justice. And when they see lack of justice, they find it difficult to believe in God. Why would there be a God that would allow people to starve, little babies to be beaten, molested, harmed? Where is the God? Why? Because we have an appeal constantly for justice. But by the power and the coming of the Holy Spirit, God is going to use the Holy Spirit to convince the world of righteousness, justice. And we're told in the Bible that he will make crooked paths straight. He will bring up valley floors and he will level high mountains. Wrongs will be made right in every imaginable way. And in so doing, justice will be served and Christ vindicated. The third thing the Holy Spirit will do is he will pass judgment on the ruler of this world. And that's going to also be accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit through you and me, working in this world through believers, because, friend, every time a person is rescued from the clutches of hell, judgment is passed on the ruler of this world. He's a loser. Every time the chains of sin are broken and the captive is set free, judgment is passed on the ruler of this world that you are powerless. and You are under the authority of one that is higher than you. By the power of the coming of the Holy Spirit. We know that the judge, the rule of this world has been judged, is being judged, and will continue to be judged through our relationship with God. Every time you resist temptation, you judge the, the ruler of this world, the prince of this world, that greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. In the battle of the Holy Spirit versus the prince of this world, I encourage you to invest it all on the Holy Spirit. It's a no-brainer. He's going to win that battle. The second thing Jesus said, now is the time that the prince of this world is cast out, which is very similar to what he said over in the 16th chapter of John that I just got done talking with. The prince of this world is judged, and the second thing Jesus said, now is the time the prince of this world is cast out. 
notice the timing of this. Before Jesus ascends into heaven as the resurrected Christ, before he takes his place at the right hand of the Father, before the stone is rolled away and the tomb is shown to be empty, no, no, before the tomb is filled with his body, before death has actually been defeated. No, before he's even crucified on the cross, before he rises from the dead, and like Paul says so eloquently in Colossians, and having disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Even before that, Days before he was even arrested while praying in the garden. Before all of these things standing there as recorded in the 12th chapter of John. Jesus says, now is the prince of this world cast out. How does he do that? Jesus steps out days before anything about his crucifixion is set in motion. As far as heaven and hell are concerned, the papers have been published and distributed, and Christ is the victor. Here in this week before the crucifixion, as he takes this ride on a donkey into Jerusalem and the people spontaneously mark his entry by laying down the palm branches, shouting Hosanna, which meant the people were crying out, Savior, save us now. That's what Hosanna meant. He finished that ride we call the triumphal entry and he made this shocking, shocking program proclamation at the end of that procession at the end of that ride he stands before his people and says now the prince of this world is cast out in other words he says it's over the war is won he hasn't been crucified yet he hasn't resurrected yet none of this has happened but he says i am declaring victory today I'm telling you, the enemy is defeated. It's over. It's done. I am here and now declaring victory. It's like before the first punch is ever thrown, one boxer raises his hands and says, I am the winner. Well, you haven't fought yet. It's like before the first game of the World Series, one team puts on a victory celebration, and says, we are the world champions. It's like the leader of a country preparing to engage in war and gets up and makes an announcement before the first shot is fired and says, ladies and gentlemen, I want to let you know today we have won this war. The announcement is sent out. Jesus stands there before any of these things happen and just says, I have an announcement to make. The enemy has just been crushed. But we still see the enemy at work. So what is going on? Was he taking a chance? In the election 
1948, incumbent Harry Truman was running against New York Governor Thomas Dewey. Some of you here today remember when this happened. In those days, the papers had to prepare their publication as early as possible to stay competitive. And the paper from Chicago, the Tribune, had went ahead and published their papers because the man that they were relying on to predict this, political analyst Arthur Henning, had successfully picked the winner in four out of five presidential elections over the past 20 years. And Henning says it's a no-brainer, it's a done deal, Dewey is the winner. Chicago Tribune ran with that. They were going to be the first to publish their papers, the first to hit the streets. And that paper came out and the banner headline, Dewey defeats Truman. Only when the papers have been distributed, they find out Henning was wrong. And it became one of the most embarrassing things to ever happen in Election history, as certainly for the Chicago Tribune, who had put the paper out and got it wrong. Now Jesus stands there before all of these things happen. And he announces he's defeated. The punch hasn't been thrown. The bullet hasn't been shot. The ballots haven't been counted. But I want to tell you something. When God says it's so, he doesn't go by a clock. He doesn't go by a calendar. And whatever he says it's so, write it down, my friend, because it's true. If he's telling you today that the victory is won, but you don't see it yet, you can put it in your books. It's done. God doesn't miss. He doesn't put out bad publications. If he says it's a done deal, friend, it is a done deal. what he did. He declared victory before earth had the evidence. His low-key ride in Jerusalem was a bit deceiving to the untrained eye. We didn't see what really happened there. The people with the palm branches didn't see what really happened there. And the people who were shouting to the top of their voice, oh, it's our Savior. It's our Messiah. He is come. Save us now. Save us now. They didn't see it. They saw the donkey. They saw the celebration. They heard the shouts. But the most important thing that happened on that day, human eye did not see. Amidst all these frenzied calls for deliverance, they didn't seal the re- see the real story because the real story was this. What was happening in the spiritual realm was that long parade of beaten and bloodied and defeated powers of this world that were being dragged behind that donkey by chains, following up behind him in total defeat. And that's why immediately when he got done, he stands up and he says, I just want to let you know what that was all about. It's done. It's over. I've already won it. Put it down in the books. Number three, the third thing that Jesus said, now is the time, is people are going to be drawn to me. And the simple statement is, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Now, let me read that again. I want to get this exactly like it says. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth... 
It's a little bit clumsy the way that reads. And I when I. Because the reason is that the translators were trying to capture what we don't typically see in this verse. And that is how Jesus put the emphasis on I. That's the reason it reads like that. When I, I, when I am lifted up. Emphatic. He's saying, when I am lifted up, as opposed to the prince that has been lifted up. The one that I just got through defeating. I'm going to be different than anything he did. When he was lifted up, the world was a mess. The former prince, I'm taking his place. But the former prince was nothing but a despot. The former prince didn't draw people by legitimate means. He lured them. He enticed them. He bribed them. He captured them. He snared them. He kidnapped them. He didn't draw anybody. He didn't draw people to himself because there was nothing about himself that was comely. He used cheap trinkets to draw them in. He drew them with false promises. He drew them with his bait, but he could not draw them with himself because there was nothing attractive about him. But he said, I, when I am lifted up, I will draw people unto me. And it won't take bait and cheap trinkets and false promises to get it done. It'll be the beauty of Christ that draws the world unto him. Now, there's a double meaning. And I'm sure you're already aware of this. But the lifted up means lifted on the cross, first of all. Because it says it signifies the manner in which he would die, the crucifixion. There's a lot of things about the cross we take for granted. Our modern day symbol, we know what a cross looks like probably was not at all like the cross Jesus was crucified on. But you know how funny we get. It's probably more an X-shaped structure. But we've got our cross. But the cross that he would be lifted up on, it's, it's a curious thing that the hideousness of that scene manage to draw people. I don't mean the twisted people of this world that love to watch an accident happen. I'm not talking about the twisted minds that like to watch live footage of death. The gruesome crowd that wants to see the worst. That's not what I'm talking about. But I am talking about the ugliness of the cross would somehow present itself as something beautiful and attractive. And it's mysterious how that could possibly happen. The bloodied and battered and disfigured body of Jesus Christ fastened with iron nails to a wooden plank, raised up to be a public spectacle to everybody who would pass by. That was the design and the purpose of crucifixion to take these people who were deemed and determined to be 
guilty and to put them on public display so that those passing by would behold what that kind of lifestyle would end up like. It was purposely designed to place the victim on shameful display as a shocking reminder to society of what happens to criminals. It was supposed to shock them. It was supposed to repel them. It was supposed to burn a hideous, gruesome reminder into their memories. No child was ever supposed to look at that and go home and say, I've just found my new hero. I want to be like that criminal that was nailed and impaled to that wooden beam. That's who I want to be. It didn't have that effect. Little children, if they would catch it, they would turn away and they would say, what is this about? And the father say, you don't want to ever be like that, son. That's what happens to people like that. That was the whole purpose of the cross, the crucifixion. It was supposed to offend people. It was supposed to disgust them. And Jesus said, unlike the two guilty men who will hang beside me, unlike the hundreds and countless ones who have already been crucified before me, unlike anybody else who is ever going to hang on a cross after me on this hill of death, when I am lifted up, I will not be repelling people away and offending people, but when I am lifted up, somehow, in some way, the hideousness of that cross is going to draw people unto me. And one day they would not only not turn away from it, but they would celebrate it. Not because they're glad he's dead and gone, but because they finally understand by the death of Jesus Christ, the price was fully and finally paid for their sins. They would actually, people after that, take bread and wine and take that and say this do in remembrance of Jesus. And they would remember that scene, that ugly horrid scene. Every one of you have seen the crucifixion scene, whether it's been portrayed in a church, whether it's been on a movie, on TV, you've seen it. Whether Pastor Russ has shown it to the kids over at daycare and they just weep because it's so heartbreaking and so heartrending. Every one of you have seen that scene. You've witnessed it. And to think that somehow going from the hideousness, the repulsion of that to taking the bread and the wine and the God telling us when you do this, think of my son. And we think of it. And you would think, I don't want to think of it. It's ugly. It's hideous. It's repulsive. But somehow God took that and turned it into the most beautiful thing that humanity has ever seen. And we think about it and we rejoice and thank you, God, for dying in my place. Thank you for the beauty of salvation. And we're reminded of that old song that we sing just about the cross and it's not about a 
wooden structure. That's just a metaphor for the whole story of redemption. It's not just about a cross, but it's about who was on that cross. On that hill stood that emblem of suffering and shame. But I love that old cross. Where the dearest and the best, the finest of heaven, for all sinners was slain. And I'll cherish it. For all of my life, I'll cherish that cross. I'm not repulsed by it. I'm drawn to it. And the second meaning of the cross is not just the lifting up of the wooden cross to put its victim on display before the world. But the second meaning goes farther. It goes into what you and I are supposed to do as we lift up Jesus Christ. Have you lifted him up this past week? Because he said, if I'll be lifted up, I'll draw all people unto me. Have you lifted him up? Have you lifted him up today? We come into his house. Did you lift him up? When I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people unto me. Now, right there, people, is the secret to how a church should function. Period. The bookstores are overflowing with how-to books for doing church today. There's books on church growth and strategies and how to, to be relevant for your day and age and what kind of sermons people will listen to today. And I'll tell you what, I have from time to time, and I still do, I have gone through and found sermons from place to place and podcasts here and there. We've got magnificent, like they landed on the moon and stepped out. We've got magnificent desolation going on here. We've got sermons about all kinds of what you can be and fulfill your potential and how to find joy and peace and how to live the best life you can live and all kinds of sermons on. But I'll tell you what, Jesus nailed it a long time ago. He didn't write the book, but they wrote the book about him. You want a church strategy? There's only one that really matters. If I be lifted up, I will draw men unto me. That's all that matters. No matter what else a church does, they have to lift Jesus Christ up. Now we have the talk circuit is flooded with young pastors who tell the story of how they fought outside the box and repackaged their church so they can have a successful product. I've read the reading list of my peers and I know what kind of books they're reading. Business management books, marketing books, church growth strategies, biographies on the latest megachurch and how it was birthed. But I go back to John 12 and swipe it all away. There's only one thing that matters. If I be lifted up, if I be lifted up, and I don't care what else the church does. There's one thing we cannot fail to do in this lift up Christ. He's the center. He's the reason. He's the purpose. He's the message. He's the star. No, he's the bright and morning star. He's the feature attraction. I don't care what style of music you choose to sing. It doesn't bother me. But Jesus Christ must be lifted up. I don't care how you like to dress on Sunday. I don't care. But Jesus Christ must be lifted up. I don't care.
here if you worship in a sanctuary without any music or if you worship with candles and stained glass. I don't care. I don't care if you worship in a warehouse or a movie theater between picture shows. I don't care. But I care that Jesus Christ is lifted up because he said if I lift it up, it be lifted up. I will draw all men unto me. Lift him up in your lifestyle. Lift him up. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, walk the walk and talk your talk and lift him up. If you're grateful for Calvary, lift him up. If you're thankful for the cross and thankful for the sacrifice, lift him up in your praise. Psalms 47, 6, 7 in the New Living Translation says, sing out your praises to God. Sing your highest praises. Everybody say, highest praises. Have you given your highest praises today? Did you give God your highest praises or did you give him one of these? That's not your highest praise. Come on, people. Give him your highest praise. He is worthy. You know why? Because he is the highest. He is far above everything and everybody else. Far above all other gods. The one who is the highest, the most high, deserves our highest praise. Paul said he's far above all principalities. He's far above all power. He's far above all might. He's greater than all dominion. Every name that is named on earth, he's bigger than they are. On all, not only in this world, but he said in the world to come, there is no higher than him. He deserves our highest praise. Give him the highest praise. Lift him up.